Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello? Uh, hello? Hello, Dimitri? Listen, I can't hear you too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Ah, uh, that's much better. Yes, yes. Fine. Yes, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good then. Well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine, yes. Now then, Dimitri... You know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb? The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is uh, one of our base commanders, he had sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And, uh, well, he went and he did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Well, but let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of, of course I like to speak with you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even gotten it. They'll not reach their targets for at least another hour. I, 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 I am positive, Dimitri. Listen, I've been all over this with your ambassador. It is not a trip. Well, I'll tell you. We'd like to give your air staff a complete rundown on the targets, the flight plans, and the defensive systems of the planes. Yes. I mean, if we were able to recall the planes, then I'd say that. Uh, well, uh, we're just going to have to help you destroy them, Dimitri. I know there are boys. All right. Well, listen now. Well, who should we call? Who, who should we call, Dimitri? The what? The people you... Oh, you sorry. Oh, you faded away there. Yeah, the People's Air Defense Headquarters. Where is that, Dimitri? In Omsk, right. Yes, okay. Oh, you'll call them first, will you? Uh-huh. Well, listen, do you happen to have the phone number on you, Dimitri? What? I see. Just ask Omsk for information, okay. I'm sorry too, Dimitri. I'm very sorry. All right, you're sorrier than I am. But I am sorry as well. I, I am as sorry as you are, Dimitri. Don't say that you're more sorry than I am because I'm capable of being just as sorry as you are. So we're both sorry, all right? All right. And that's how I learned to start worrying and loathe the bomb.
Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we have a very special treat for you. As I said, this episode is how I learned to start worrying and loathe the bomb. Those of you who know Stanley Kubrick's true masterpiece, Dr. Strangelove, probably recognize that quote from the beginning, which I, a movie I do love so much. And today, I'll be sharing an episode with you that I prepared in tandem with one of our patrons, Scott. So, it turns out, if you donate enough money, you can, with enough cajoling and heckling, get me to do an episode for you. Scott is very, very passionate about the threat of nuclear weapons and convinced me to do a show on it because, you might not know, I was actually once somewhat blasé about nuclear weapons. Quite blasé. And a big part of it was, you know, look, I studied basic game theory and like any college undergraduate, once I'd taken uh, a single course on it in which I paid some attention, I felt like I was a global expert. And I said, look, you know, there's, there's just... No good reason for people to start, you know, for the Soviet Union or the Russia and the United States to start hucking nukes at each other. Um, the game theory says it shouldn't happen, so it won't happen. So it's not going to happen, right? Mutually assured destruction is the big idea. It means we're safe. And frankly, you know, nuclear weapons also have probably prevented major wars between powers, right? So, you know, because the risk of escalation is too high and nobody wants their country turned into a smoldering, you know, piece of pavement. And so this is actually great stuff. And I have... You know, I think even fairly credited, to some extent, the relative peace in the post-Second World War period to the fact that nuclear bombs are a thing. What is interesting is that, you know, with nuclear bombs being a thing, um, you actually did have, especially in the 50s and 60s, you did have major efforts to quietly de-escalate stuff that it would seem in the past of, you know, humanity would have otherwise escalated wildly. Um, a good example is the Korean War, right? The Soviets were involved in the Korean War. The Americans were involved in the Korean War. But the Soviets painted their jet fighters to look like Chinese planes. Were they jets at the time? Whatever. Their fighters to look like Chinese planes. And we just let them pretend that. Why? Because we were definitely not at war with the Soviets. We even decided not to call it a war. It was a police action. Uh, and I'm, if I recall correctly, no war has ever been declared since World War II because of Truman's decision to call it a police action. So there's an unintended consequence. But, you know, it made sure that it didn't escalate the way that World War I might have, right? There's no particular reason pre-nuclear weapons that, World War, or that Korea might not have turned into World War I. And I think others largely credit nuclear weapons for keeping the Korean conflict contained. Similarly with the Vietnam conflict, but um, similarly with the Cuban Missile Crisis, although they caused the crisis, they were also part of the reason that, um, you know, the U.S. and Soviets were only willing to play chicken so far, right? So, like, basically, when you're playing chicken, you know, uh, if you've seen the beginning of the first Mad Max, I mean, the first one, not Road Warrior, the one that's just called Mad Max, the Knight Rider and Mad Max are facing off, and the uh, Knight Rider loses the game of chicken because Max is ice cold, and he ends up careening off into a ditch and presumably dying right there. And, you know, in a game of chicken, you know, it's a matter of who bolts first, but usually both sides bolt. And so, uh, you know, you have this chicken game because the thing is, if neither side bolts, both sides lose hard. That's the game theory of chicken. So, you know, to some extent, the risk of nuclear war meant that everyone was willing to play, you know, play smart and make sure that the, the crisis was resolved reasonably. But it's worth noting that there's a reason I shared this quote, delightful as it is, from Dr. Strangelove at the beginning of this episode. And it's primarily because, 
Well, it assumes everyone's a rational actor and that they're dealing with fairly good information. And the whole point of Dr. Strangelove, which, you know, we'll get to, is that this might not always be the case. And so Scott wanted me to talk about the current threat of nuclear weapons and also actually some proposals to make them less threatening that aren't just let's get rid of them. Because is that really going to happen? Well, we'll talk about it. So mutually assured destruction was dogma in the IR world for a while. And, you know, with any dogma, there's heterodoxy. And so it's, you know, any professors listening be like, well, you know, there's Ted Postal. Well, it turns out uh, I was taking classes with Ted Postal at MIT. Um, He's one of the big detractors of U.S. ballistic missile and nuclear missile defense strategy for a very, very long time. Infamous dude among the DOD, in part because he was the first guy to call out that uh, the Iron Dome system in the early 90s when Iraq was launching SCUDs. You know, the U.S. claimed that it had a 90% kill rate of SCUDs, then maybe 50, and he said, no, 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 it's more like 10, and actually got the DOD to publicly do an audit and realize oh, it's actually 10. Um, he was a big detractor of Star Wars and anything else that was designed to make the United States safe from ballistic missiles or nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles by just shooting down the missiles, saying the technology is so far from being realistic that it's dangerous to think that it could work. Also turns out, as he taught us, um, one side having a defense technology that they think works actually makes the whole thing unstable again because if you think you can prevent yourself from being nuked but you can nuke the other guy you're more likely to launch him and so that threatened the was even what he said a flawed dogma of mutually assured destruction mutually assured destruction for those who don't know is uh if you and i have nukes and i launch some nukes at you you'll know that i launched nukes at you before my nukes have totally taken you out It's very hard to get a surprise nuke or a lot of surprise nukes in a big country like the United States or the Soviet Union or even Russia. And and therefore, you can retaliate. And uh, if we have enough nukes, it's impossible to get rid of them all. And we can retaliate against each other. And so if I launch nukes, you're going to launch nukes back at me probably. And we'll destroy each other and we'll all be dead. Mutually assured destruction. And therefore, it doesn't make any sense to use nukes on each other. It just doesn't. Because it would just end in all of us dying, Right. And uh, that's the one outcome we can all agree that we don't want, even in this wacky world that we live in. And, you know, I remember also Dan Carlin saying at the end of, oh, he just finished it. He just finished The Supernova in the East this year, which is, you know, this year. Uh, If you don't know Dan Carlin, it's a delight to be able to introduce you to him. Um, Hardcore history. He just finished his series Supernova in the East, you know, which, of course, it's about the Pacific War and, you know, the Pacific part of World War II. And he, you know, of course, discusses the United States using the nuclear bomb. And in that, as well as some other stuff that he does in hardcore history, he kind of marvels that it's been 75 years since the first two bombs were dropped on humans and they were never used again, even though there are lots of opportunities to do so and a lot of things that almost went wrong, which we'll actually talk about. And so Scott wants us to talk about nukes. And, you know, it's interesting. It's easy to poo-poo nukes a little bit, you know, when you've got what seem like much more pressing issues. Right, we've got a pandemic, we've got climate change, and that's starting to look really ugly now, isn't it? It's not a not a hypothetical thing anymore. That's how that's the idea about warnings. Is turns out you warn people that X is going to happen, and they don't really listen until it happens. But you know, the West Coast where I live is just on fire all the time, stuff like that. So it seems like we have these very pressing issues, and so it's hard to think about nukes as much of a thing, in particular because it has been seventy five years since anyone's used one, and like the tension that seemed to be 
uh, a core part of the Cold War eased, right? Because U.S. won, Soviets lost. But you might all know about the Doomsday Clock, uh, which is held by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and they've fairly recently brought the clock down from two minutes, not to one minute, but to 100 seconds. So they're getting quite granular. In 2018, it was two minutes to midnight. 2017, two and a half. 2015, three minutes. 2012, five minutes. And 2010, six minutes to midnight. Turns out the Doomsday Clock had never before, 2021, been less than two minutes to midnight. So 100 seconds is the closest it's ever been. So the Bulletin Atomic Scientists, at least, which has some smart people, you know, started by Albert Einstein, has that Ted Postal fella. You know, they think we are closer to uh, Armageddon than we've ever been. And a big part of the factor that changed is that disinformation is so easy to spread. You know, you can convince people that uh, you know, a pandemic that has killed millions is not a pandemic. You can convince people of basically anything, right? You can convince people that like wearing masks is bad for them and the pandemic is not bad for them. You can convince people of just about anything. And they've realized this and they realized that that can mean that democracies, which we used to think were pretty rational, right? And balanced can become quite unbalanced and start to do some crazy stuff. And that means that we might do some irrational stuff with these nukes. They, they also are actually starting to see climate change as a major factor, uh, in part because it could just be so disruptive with stuff like mass migration and, um, and other stuff that could cause major, major global conflict in a scale that we've not seen since World War II. That increases the risk of nukes being used. And so here we are at 100 seconds to midnight. So the closest to Armageddon, according to them, that we have ever, ever been. And I want to transition over to something that Scott said to cue me up for this episode. So, listener Scott says, quote, The U.S., Russia, and China are all developing new weapons and delivery systems, which have the potential to be very destabilizing. The U.S. is in the beginning stages of modernizing its entire triad, which is a triad of uh, ballistic, or of nuclear weapon systems, with a potential cost in the one to two trillion range uh, over the coming decades. And then there's the wild cards of North Korea, Iran, and the recent conflict in Israel, um, and last year's skirmishes between India and Pakistan, which are, of course, both nuclear armed, all worrisome to say the least. And I'm not alone in thinking so. He then makes the point that the doomsday clock was set to 100 seconds midnight in January 2020. And yet very few people are talking about this, and this needs to change. So we're going to talk about it a little bit more today. So I want to get into the strategy, the high-level stuff here, because I don't just want to say, like, nukes are bad, they are scary. I want to talk about understanding the strategy and game theory behind nukes, behind nuclear weapons, uh, and then also and using that to help us understand the reason behind one of the proposals that Scott likes and I happen to really like. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So um, first I want to talk about the first strike problem. So this was a major, major, major problem. And part of why folks like Postal think that um, uh, mutually assured destruction is not so stable, right? So the idea, the, the old idea was like mutually assured destruction made everything very stable made sure that we wouldn't launch against each other. It'd just be crazy to do so. But for mutually assured destruction to be a thing, what you need is a response system, right? You need something that says, okay, well, I have to have a credible threat that if you nuke me, I'll nuke you back, which means you have to have a response system. And the thing about nukes is that they're very disruptive when you get nuked, right? Especially if a lot of them are coming your way very quickly which you could even do with bomber planes, but then missiles started getting developed. And, you know, and, and now you have a need, again, in order to keep someone from nuking you, to have a credible way to be able to say, look, even if it's way too late for us to stop them, if we know the nukes are coming, we're going to get you. And so a couple things need to be true. One of them is that you need a very quick decision-making apparatus. It used to be the case, especially for someone like the United States, who doesn't really have land border threats, right? Just has, you know, it's got big oceans. Um, it used to be the case that the United States could only really take serious military action with a declaration of war by Congress, right? That's part of what kept the U.S. out of the war in the Second World War for so long. But because of the need to respond quickly, uh, y'all know about the nuclear football, the president of the United States was given authority to be able to like nuke people under certain conditions if you wanted. And really as the head of, you know, as the Supreme or as the commander in chief of the military with that football could basically press some buttons and be like, all right, let's go. Nukes are launching because you might by the time, you know, the eighties came around, you only had a potentially a few minutes from the time an early warning system let you know. So again, because we need the credible threat that we can respond very quickly, we had to have structures that allowed us to respond very quickly. And in particular, the first strike problem is this. So one, uh, so you need to be able to respond quickly, but two, and just as importantly, if you have land-based nuclear weapons systems, such as silos, like silos are great and all, but there's they're unlikely to really survive a nuke. So if, and this is all stuff that I learned from Ted Postal at MIT, it was very cool. We had a whole class on it. And uh, like most undergrads who take such classes, I then became an expert in nuclear warfare. So I'm going to share some of this sophomoric expertise with you. Um, so if you have a bunch of land-based systems, you know, you know that the other guy is going to strike at them first. Why? Because if you're going to launch nukes, the whole point is you actually don't want them to be able to hit you back with a bunch. And so if you're going to attack a major nuclear armed country, the first thing you attack is all the nukes you know about. And so, you know, what was happening in this kind of cat and mouse game was, you know, we were constantly trying to find the Soviets' uh, land-based missile systems, and they were trying to find ours. You know, before that, it was bomber, it was airfields, aircraft carriers, stuff like that. And so the problem is with this uh, mutually assured destruction thing is if someone, if you think someone's nuking you, there's an incentive, there's a strong incentive to hurry up and get your nukes out of the silos. You don't want them sitting around just getting blown up because then, you know, you're screwed. And it's not that, you know, to some extent, like you have this weird moral dilemma if someone is actually launching a thousand nukes at you about like, hey, do I just let the United States die or do I take the damn Soviets down with me? 
Um, that's a moral dilemma. But again, in order to have the deterrent capability, you need to be able to let everyone know that you're capable of responding and willing to respond. And so you have to set up all these structures and ways to respond. And so nuclear strategy becomes, well, just in case they nuke us, we need to have a system where when those nukes are coming, we launch our nukes. Because if we don't, our nukes get blown up and we can't respond, which makes them more likely to nuke us, right? This is like the weird head game that's going on. If you think about it too long, you know, you start to go cross-eyed. And so basically what this means is if you really think someone's launching nukes at you, the game theory says launch everything you can. And uh, it turns out that this, and again, this is the case when you have nukes that they can attack. When you have nukes that they can attack, such as land, you know, land-based systems, such as um, nuclear silos, which are one part of the triad, and uh, bombers, which are another part of the triad, then we'll talk about the third part of the triad later, my favorite. Um, then what you want to do is launch everything you can, which means, you know, hypothetically, let's say, something made you really, really, really think you were getting nuked, even though you weren't, then, or even if, you know, some rogue agent want, you know, is hucking a few nukes at you and you, you know they're nukes and you think a lot more are coming, uh, might be coming, then you better throw everything you got at them, which means... Which, which means that the game theory actually changes into an unstable system, an unstable game, not a stable game, right? Because the, the problem is, again, you don't have, like, what are the things that make this complicated, that make just mutually assured destruction way too simple a concept? It's that you don't have perfect information in the game, right? This game being the game theory game that, you know, again, the simple analysis says mutually assured destruction, no, no one should do anything. But you don't have perfect information, and... Uh, you don't always have perfectly rational actors. So like some nitwit may decide to launch or some nitwit may think that the other side has launched. And those cases need only happen once for everyone to lose because of the response system, right? So, you know, if, if, yeah. So, because what would happen is like, let's just say on the off chance that say some Soviet, uh, you know, radar systems or NORAD, you know, the North American radar uh, defense system, um, you know, saw some, you know, got some signals that were like, oh my gosh, I think these are nukes and I think they're coming in fast. What do you do? You launch everything. And then the Soviets find out about it. What do they do? They launch everything. You actually get the mutually assured destruction, right? And so mutually assured destruction doesn't start to sound quite so uh, comforting a concept anymore because those things could happen. And the thing is, they did happen. We'll actually go over them in a few seconds. But one of the reasons I love the movie Dr. Strangelove um, and why Kubrick was so passionate about making it was Dr. Strangelove, the movie, which if you haven't seen it, of course you should, outlines the madness of the first strike strategy and the escalation problem. And that's the entire plot of Dr. Strangelove is this idea that like once you kick this set of dominoes, it's very, very, very hard to stop. Again, the reason for it being hard to stop was so that like, let's say the president gets taken out after he makes the order. Well, just keep going. You don't want to have double, triple, quadruple confirmations because then everyone is stuck if like communication lines go down or something like that. Like you can't have, you know, you can't give the Soviets too easy a way from to keep you from launching all your nukes. So you want your nukes to be on, again, the, the game theory in this situation is like, you want your nukes to be on a bit of a hair trigger. Horrifying. And that hair trigger is a big part of... Dr. Changelove's movie, where, of course, uh, in this case, you actually just have a non-rational actor, you know, who decides that he just hates the communists enough 
something about purity of essence, you should watch the movie, um, but that he's going to attack them. But it turns out the Soviets, in order to deter, in order to ensure mass you know, mutually assured destruction and therefore deter the United States from ever attacking, build a doomsday device. Basically what it is, is if you hit the Soviet Union with a nuke, there's like a truly automated trigger system that will cause like deep buried nukes to blow up and like take out the entire world. And, and so, you know, what ends up happening in the movie is uh, this guy goes crazy. He's sending a plane full of bombs to nuke the Soviets and you know, you have this conversation, you know, where the president has to inform Dmitry, the whatever of Russia, about these, you know, about this nuclear armed airplane coming in to bomb his country. And then Dmitry has to let the Americans know, like, by the way, we have a doomsday device. Uh, so if you nuke us, we'll all die. And that gets you Dr. Strangelove's famous quote where he says, The whole point of a doomsday machine is lost if you keep it a secret. And, you know, I won't spoil how it ends. And so this thing that's meant to be the ultimate deterrent ends up being one of the dominoes in the world's destruction because you have these first strike policies with these hair triggers that are all, you know, very hard to recall. And so Kubrick shows how insane this all is that we all like live under this sort of Damocles, like not with someone rational at the helm, which like, you know, after the four years, maybe we don't even think the person at the helm is so rational anymore. But, you know, so that's one worry. But the other thing is like, the person at the helm um, isn't in full control over whether this happens. And so there are, there are a few examples of where, this, uh, of where this hair trigger response system almost ended the world. We actually talked about one of these in our first agoraphobia episode, which should scare the pants off of you. The world did indeed almost end when Stanislav Petrov's USSR version of NORAD equivalent saw multiple times what looked like intercontinental ballistic missiles coming in, and his instructions were to return fire if he, or to, to instruct, you know, the system to return fire if he saw that. So not even run it up the chain to the Politburo or whatever, but because of the need for speed, just do it. And he repeatedly said, no, 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 no. And it turns out it was like reflections off of clouds or something stupid. Again, imperfect information for the players in the game. And he said, no, 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 we're not going to do it. And uh, saved the world. And uh, has, has long been lauded as a hero to all of mankind after that. Obviously, the Cuba missile blockade and missile crisis, you know, could have ended in a nuclear strike in part because the first strike problem what was happening was Kennedy's military advisors, I believe to a man, but pretty much all of them were saying, you absolutely have to attack these sites where the Cubans have these missiles. It's too dangerous. You have to surprise attack them. You have to take them out. And you could have had this massive escalation, again, because of the first strike problem. Um, and Kennedy, this like young, this young doofus from, uh, you know, who like goofed off through Harvard and was this like rich brat of a kid, at least according to them, held his ground, said, no, we're going to do a, we're going to do a blockade and play a different game of chicken and see who blinks first. And the Soviets still almost tried to like break through the blockade, but blinked in the game of nuclear chicken, turned away and, um, you know, and de-armed, uh, you know, in exchange for the United States giving up a bunch of missiles in Ukraine or Turkey, sorry, Turkey. And so the world, you know, may have also mentioned then, not to mention things like broken arrows, which are when nuclear weapons are accidentally uh, dropped, launched, or otherwise lost. 
there's a movie called Broken Arrow about, oh gosh, a nuke is about to be lost and this is the worst thing ever. So we have to have like cool American action hero dudes go save them uh, or go, go save it. Well, it turns out this has already happened. Not once, not twice, not five times, not 10 times, but 32 times since 1950 in the United States alone have there been nuclear accidents of some sort. And so, uh, and six of those have been lost and never recovered, including planes that just disappeared. Collisions. Nuclear bombs literally accidentally dropped out of planes that were carrying them because you have a button that makes them drop. Oops, we dropped them. Inspectors multiple times said that it was a miracle some of these bombs did not explode uh, because the damage to the bomb itself, you know, they're not, uh, they're not a hair trigger explosion, or maybe they are, but... But once they're dropped, you know, enough damage can cause the firing pin to release, which would smash together the two bits of uranium, or if it's a hydrogen bomb, well, still that, and trigger the chain reaction and kill everybody. I mean, just like, you know, imagine the DEFCON freak out if a nuclear bomb went off by mistake in your own country or somewhere random, right? Like we would be at ultra, ultra hair trigger. Um, there's, a list, uh, there's a list that we put in the show notes among a bunch of other notes research for this one. And the list is just like absolutely fascinating and horrifying. And I encourage everyone to go read this list of uh, moment, list of, of broken arrows. Um, it's on atomicarchive.com. And so we don't talk about this much, but it's absolutely astounding that the United States and Russia through like all these mistakes and errors and like oopsies and bad information and stressful moments in their relationship, like we're able to work together and one, not murderize each other during that time period, but also work together to secure this, the entire Soviet nuclear arsenal when the Soviet Union fell apart, right? Like, and we all know what Russia was like in the early 90s. is very nearly a third world country and, you know, total breakdown of, of like the conventional channels of order and, and military command. Um, these nukes aren't, ev- many of these nukes aren't even in Russia. They're in these countries that have just declared independence and some of them like literally never had had a formalized government, like a formalized modern government before. And I mean, some of them had, but like they were having their own problems, lots and lots of theft, right? Like one of the reasons AK-47s are so prolific among other like Soviet light arms is that like they got stolen and then sold you know people didn't have loyalty to the system anymore so they could have like sold these nukes for personal profit i mean just astounding um unsung victory for the likes of george w sorry george herbert walker bush george hw bush and boris yeltsin and uh because like i just just think of empires collapsing and the amount of chaos that has happened in history when that happens uh and in the case of you know, in the case of the fall of the Soviet Union, it somehow didn't. And that's so much of the history of nukes in those 75 years is, yep, it almost went to hell. We almost killed ourselves or like, or at least, you know, caused so much damage to send, you know, many nations into apocalyptic decline. And we somehow didn't. Sometimes through dumb luck, sometimes through a combination of luck and like very smart policy and, and navigation and sometimes through the incredible heroism and and risk taking uh, by people like Stanislav Petrov and you know and so we're here able to talk about it so how do we get this like sword of ultimate Damocles from over our head right it's one thing to die it's one thing to have things go wrong it's one thing to have the damn Taliban take over uh, Afghanistan again, which maybe we'll talk about later, but it's very depressing. But it's another thing for all of us, you know, for 
for humanity to end itself. It's one of the ways that, you know, it's, it's one of the ways that we could avoid, you know, becoming like a advanced starfaring nation or a people, you know, and human history ending would be a bummer. So like, can we get out of this? And it, and it, of course, like, you know, can we actually get rid of nukes forever? Probably not. Like it would, it would require a like unity of purpose uh, among humankind that doesn't seem possible without some sort of like external enemy see the plot of Watchmen not the terrible I think 2019 TV show version but the comic book slash movie um, very worth watching all about well it's about a lot of things but uh, the history is all about the world almost going to nuclear war and someone trying to stop it and Therefore, you probably can't get people to agree to get rid of nukes. And uh, to some extent, it even kind of makes sense for the good guys like the United States and Britain to have nukes because there's at least a credible threat to try to like for like bad or crazy or angered people with nukes to behave themselves or else like it's one of those things that's like the game hearts. Like once you break hearts in the card game hearts, anyone could throw hearts. And, you know, if you start you know, you're Pakistan or India and you started actually hucking nukes at each other, uh, bad, bad, bad things may happen. And so more rational players are more likely to behave if someone like the United States has nukes. And, and so for a lot of reasons, you know, can you get rid of nukes? Probably not. But can you get rid of the, uh, you know, the acuteness of the first strike problem that hair trigger? Turns out you probably can. Um, and so this is cool. So I want to talk about the magic of boomers. And uh, these would be the first boomers you ever like. hey But what they are are uh, not cranky old people who don't want to wear masks. They're big, stealthy, secret submarines that are pretty much constantly in the water, or at least a big chunk of them are constantly in the water. Um, you know, the others are just cycling back to get a new crew for its six-month journey back in the water. And so they're stealthy, and they're just kind of all over the ocean. Uh, in places that are a super duper big time secret, they contain 20 nukes. So it used to be 24. So don't don't write me and correct me. It's 24. That's changed in a sense a treaty. Although one of the things that Scott mentioned to me was that many treaties designed to you know reduce nuclear stockpiles, which were signed and the stockpiles were reduced and uh, and contain you know testing, contain contain escalation. Uh, those treaties, some of those treaties with Russia have been scrapped. But anyway. These boomers, they have 20 nukes. They're very hard to detect. There are 14 of them in the water, which means 280 nukes, which is a lot of nukes and very plausibly enough to do so much damage to an enemy such as China or Russia uh, as to be an effective deterrent because each of these missiles, uh, these Trident 2s, so there's 280 of them, has three MIRVs, which are uh, multiple independently targetable reentry vehicles, each containing warheads of, I believe, 200 kilotons of thermonuclear fire. And they move at, you know, incredible speeds, like 19,000 kilometers an hour with onboard sighting systems and internal guidance. They're pretty badass in uh, a nuclear war. And you could basically go just take out, you know, you could take out a whole bunch of cities with remember that, you know, again, this is 200 kilotons. And the bomb that took out most of Hiroshima was 15 kilotons. So, you know, we talk about things like Tsar Bama, like 200 megatons or something crazy like that you know, which are just way, way bigger. But, you know, you're launching 280 times three is quick math, 840, I think, of these nukes. Uh, you know, you got a pretty good way of saying, hey, look, so here's, here's the trick. Why is this cool? 
it gives you time to retaliate. It's a second strike capability. And it's because, you know, presumably, the submarine, or at least enough of them, are sufficiently secret uh, that the enemy, you know, whoever it is, doesn't know where they are. Which means that, let's say they launch a bunch of nukes at our missile silos, uh, if there are any there and takes them out. Well, we still have 280 nukes ready to rock. And so it means that, you know, assuming that someone in the chain of command is still safe, they can take their time, which means you don't have this thing going on where you go like, oh, holy smokes, here come, you know, we, we saw something on NORAD, we think it may be nukes. Do we need to launch now or not? You can take your time and say, mm, hold on, hold on. Like, if we can't shoot them down, we're effed anyway. So we can wait and see, and then if we need to, you know, if we need to respond, again, we will, right? And the whole point is to not have to respond. Like, the whole point of this is to be like the FDIC. Like, the whole point of the FDIC is that you don't need to use it, because the FDIC insures your bank account from a run on the bank, which means that people aren't going to run on the bank because they know it's insured by the FDIC, which means they'll never get used. Same thing here. You have a second strike capability, which means that you're not going to accidentally fire your nukes because you think someone else is nuking you, which means that it's less likely that we're actually going to nuke each other because most of the instances in which we'll nuke each other are accidental. That's the point of second strike capability. Very nice. Calms things down a lot. And so we're less likely to escalate. And so it's a very nice thing to have, and it's one thing that's, that's probably done a pretty good job keeping us safe for quite a while. But, you know, we still remain at danger because, for example, most, uh, most nukes are still not on these submarines. They're mostly land-based for both, um, for all of China, the United States, and Russia. Um, and there's this idea of not having a missile gap. Uh, what they were talking about, they talk about bomber gap, missile gap. Um, in Dr. Strangelove, they talked about a mineshaft gap. And the whole point of these gaps was, well, if the Soviets have enough more nukes than we do, then like we could only destroy them five times over and they could destroy us 200 times over. So that would be bad, right? It's a little, it gets a little silly at large numbers, but during the... Um, you know, during the de-escalation phase of the post-Cold War era, which has basically ended, you know, most of these stockpiles were reduced to a point that a gap was, um, you know, was a little more meaningful, right? Because, like, we could take out a little bit of you and you could take out a lot of us, which means that the nuclear deterrence capability is not quite there. And you want the deterrent capacity on both sides to be, you know, fairly equal without spending ungodly amounts of money or creating lots of opportunities for accidents like accidental explosions. So there's, there's more work that we could do. And there is uh, what I will call a modest proposal from former Secretary of Defense William J. Perry, who was the Secretary of Defense under Bill Clinton. He has a, and his granddaughter, Lisa, who is, uh, she's apparently a big driver of this. And they're promoting a three-point policy platform that we can take to reduce our precarious predicament. So he says, one, the United States should declare a no first use policy as China has done and Russia did back in the 80s. So basically just have a policy where, you know, open policy that we're very public about, about how we will respond to different stuff. And we won't be the first, you know, we'll never be the first to use nuclear weapons. The United States tends to not to like to do this, like tie its own hands. So for example, we haven't, we haven't signed the United UN Charter of the Law of the Sea, UN clause. We want everyone else to sign it. We want China to sign it. Uh, we act by it, but we won't sign it. And so, um, but there doesn't seem to be a really good reason not to use nukes first. So what that would do is it would reduce opportunities to develop things such as tactical nuclear weapons, which are as dumb as they sound, 
they are meant to be very small nukes to be used in limited engagements, not to destroy civilian populations. The problem is you start doing that, you risk escalation, in part because sophisticated countries all over the world have ways of like detecting nuclear explosions going off, right? And if they start going off, people start to get really nervous, right? So having a no first use policy would prevent stuff like tactical nuclear weapons and other dumb things like that from being built or used. Two, creates a system of checks and balances on the president's authority to launch nuclear weapons as literally every other nuclear armed nation does. So the good news is in other nuclear armed nations, you at least need other people. And they don't have to be like in some nations, it's like any one or two of the following people also need to say yes for this to go. So it's one of those like, you know, you need multiple people to turn the key kind of thing, which you have in these boomer subs. You have two people turn the key to launch the nuke. At the same time, just to make sure one person doesn't go crazy to do it. So having some sort of system checks and balances where you can still move fairly fast if you need to, but remember you don't need to move as fast if you have second strike capability. So you can get rid of some of these hair trigger systems that were in place during the Cold War to try to, you know, affect mutually assured destruction. You can get rid of some of those. And as, again, other nations have done, because why would you want to accidentally nuke some? So you can do that. Three, retire the ICBM leg of our triad, which is, uh, you know, due to its stationary nature, everyone has, you know, or enough people have set, enough countries have their own satellites. They know where they are. Like China knows where our ICBMs are. So ICBMs, again, sit in silos in the ground, intercontinental ballistic missiles. That's what ICBM stands for. And uh, they have that use it or lose it problem. So even though we have a second strike capability, why would you have nukes that have a use it or lose it thing going on? Why would you not put them in a more mobile state? And so you just want to take as much pressure off to launch those missiles um, if you suspect an incoming attack, you know, and, and they cost a lot to upkeep. So if you shut those down, you have budget room for more boomer submarines, if that's what you want. Oh, yeah. And then uh, end all development of tactical nuclear weapons, period. Right. So just not have, you know, strategic nuclear weapons are the ones that's like, we're going to drop this and take out an entire city. It has deterrent capacity. Right. It's just so destructive that it has deterrent capacity. That's its value. But... Uh, the United States does sometimes, or does invest in researching and developing, in case it wants to build them, tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, in the words of Scott, idiotically aims to make nukes more usable. Again, which for reasons of accidentally escalating things into destroying all of humanity is something you generally would not want to do. So that is, that is Secretary of State per Perry's modest proposal. So if you're hearing this and you're thinking, wow, Scott and Eric, I'm so inspired by this. This is like way worse than I thought it was and I actually want to do something about it. Um, there is uh, a website that Secretary of Defense Perry, I maybe said state a few times, defense, he's defense. So Secretary of Defense William J. Perry has the William J. Perry Project um, in which you can get educated, get involved, and learn how to lobby your congressperson or other people in order to like actually put through some of these policies because we still need Congress to do that. Mr. Perry is a regular citizen, can't do it on his own. So uh, if you want to find that, it's wjperryproject.org. Perry is spelled P-E-R-R-Y. So wjperryproject.org, also linked in the show notes. Mr. Perry will do a much better job of trying to you know, guide you on exactly how to take action uh, than I will. But I will leave you with a quote by Mr. Perry about the current situation as he sees it. He says, quote, Our nuclear weapons policy is obsolete and dangerous. I know because I helped to design it. So if you believe from this that we might be at the brink, 
uh, and you'd like to, you know, try to avoid nuclear disaster that could kill all of us, go to wjperryproject.org. I want to thank Scott for a great topic. Um, Scott, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Those of you who are interested in having me, Eric, do a podcast episode for you, much like this one, go to patreon.com slash reconsider and you can find the tier of support that would give you your own project, uh, sorry, your own podcast. But there are all sorts of other cool perks for those of you who want to support and those of you who, who don't necessarily want your own episode, but just want to keep supporting the show and helping us keep going. Because again, we now have, uh, it's cool, we now have enough money to generally break even as long as I stay busy. And uh, I'm going to try my darndest to stay busy. But it'd be great to have uh, some dollars to be able to keep expanding uh, the listener network and try to spend, you know, try to spread a little more sanity in the world. Uh, you can just donate a buck a show, which is all we ask. Again, at patreon.com slash reconsider. Everyone who's signed up, um, and supports us. I mean, you make the show possible. We literally wouldn't exist without you. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Those of you who want to check out some show notes uh, and see some of our uh, blog posts and etc., you can go to reconsidermedia.com. And finally, if you're dead broke but would still like to support the show, please go on your podcatcher, so Spotify, iTunes, whatever you're using. Uh, and maybe it's not iTunes anymore, but whatever. Whatever you're using. Uh, it'd be great if you leave us, left us a review. It helps us get found and helps people who find us decide to listen. So again, huge support recently this last year. It's been a very tough couple of years for everyone. Thanks for sticking with us. It's so, it means so much to be here at the mic and know that, you know, through this little metal cylinder, there are folks on the other side that are part of this with us. So with that, don't let the pundits do the thingy for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.